We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. John chapter 11, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, he saith to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. And goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. You know, they were about as bright as you and me. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. When she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary that she rose up hastily and went out followed her saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept and said to the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha the sister of him that was dead saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, 
Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast heard me, and I knew that Thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that Thou hast sent me. When he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his napkin was, uh, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. I, I pray that you would take it. I know that it has life already breathed into it, preserved inerrantly by the Holy Ghost. But I pray that you'd give us a door of utterance this morning. And Father, that this word would be breathed to life in our ears, in our hearts, that you may stir us, that you may do a work in our midst. Lord, I couldn't even venture to know even the heart's condition of a single person in this room other than myself. But Lord, I am thankful that you know the heart's condition of every person. And they're here not by accidents or coincidence, but by providence, Lord. And I just pray that this morning your will would be accomplished in their heart. If they sit here in need of salvation, never been born again, I pray they not leave this place ere they've experienced your miraculous resurrection and been born again. Lord, if they need comforted, I pray that you'd comfort them. Encouraged, encourage them. Convicted, convict them. But Father, in all things, may Christ receive the glory. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in His precious name. Amen. Now, I appreciate your patience. As we've read through these 44 verses, I wanted to give you a comprehensive view of the narrative that is set before us in John chapter number 11. Because as I mentioned, it is a chapter that is about the resurrection of Lazarus. But it is much more than a chapter about the resurrection of Lazarus. Really, it's a chapter about the resurrection of the Lord. Because in this chapter, the Lord Jesus proves to His followers His power to raise a body from the grave. His power, His command, His authority, His sway, not just over humans, not just over creation, but over the very life and death of the human experience. And He, through this miracle, proves to these three people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, He proves His ability and desire to raise the dead. As you go through the Word of God, you will find that there were seven people uh, that were raised from the dead before Christ rose from the dead. Some people say six. If you don't count Jonah, there were six. I believe we ought to count Jonah. You may disagree with that. I don't believe Jonah would have been a fit picture of the Lord Jesus had he not died and then risen, been risen from the grave. And so, if we take that as the scriptural standard, then Lazarus is the seventh person in human history to be raised from the dead. Seven of course, in the Bible is the number of completion, of perfection. And it's interesting that Jesus would then be the eighth person risen from the dead. It's almost like with the seventh one, God shows mankind how to perfectly raise someone from the dead. There's only one thing lacking, and that's that Lazarus would die again one day. But when Jesus rose from the dead, He rose to die no more. The number eight is the number of new beginnings. And certainly when Christ rose from the grave, it gave a new beginning in human history. It gave a new beginning for God's people. A new dispensation was introduced. A new covenant was enacted. A new day of grace uh, began to shine upon humanity. And you and I find our new beginning in life through accepting, believing, and experiencing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I find interesting in this chapter that all three of these individuals, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, these are siblings, uh, two sisters and a brother, 
They all three are faced with the resurrection in three different ways. And here's the thought I want to get across to you this morning. The resurrection of Christ is introduced to us in Scripture in three ways. The first two individuals, they comprehended the resurrection. And the last individual, he didn't just comprehend it, he apprehended it. You know, you may be sitting here in the house of God today, and you know why you're here. I would venture there's probably not anyone sitting in the house of God today that's saying, who's this Jesus fella? There's probably not anyone that's sitting around saying, why is everyone dressed up? What's this Easter, this Resurrection Sunday all about? If I had to guess, you probably already have a comprehension of the resurrection. Here's the question I want to ask you. Do you have an apprehension of it? Not just do you understand it, but have you partaken in it? So I want you to notice these three individuals. The first I want to introduce you to is a woman by the name of Martha. Martha is an interesting individual in Scripture. Uh, She's always sort of in the background, except in one particular instance. In Luke chapter number 10, they're having a meal in their house. And Martha is busy going about serving and working and laboring. And You know, she's got flour all over and got water all over. She's got uh, dishes sitting in the sink. She's working and laboring. And her sister Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha is famous for fussing. Because she turns around, looks at the Son of God, God the Son. I'm talking about God in the flesh. I'm talking about God walking amongst men. I'm talking about the Creator of the world. She turns around and she fusses at Him. And she says, Lord, why don't you tell that lazy sister of mine to get up and to help me in this kitchen? And the Lord rebukes her in love and gentleness and says, Mary, you're, you're cumbered about, you're troubled, you're worried, you're frantic. Uh, Mary, she's chosen the better part. The dishes can sit for a little while. Why don't you come and sit for a little while and absorb some of the teaching, sit at my feet for a short while. But in this episode, we have a glimpse into the personality of Martha. Martha's a worker, man. Martha is a cold pragmatist. She is somebody that looks at the job, that looks at the task, that looks at what must be done, and does it. And so it should be no surprise to us that in John chapter 11, we find her comprehending the resurrection through the means of explanation. She is the first one that comes and meets the Lord. And when she gets there, she asks this question in verse number 21. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now here in a moment, her sister Mary is going to ask the identical question. But Martha then makes a statement afterwards. Notice what she says in verse 22. She says, but I know. Lord, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why Lazarus is dead. I don't know why you waited to come. I know you had news long before he died. I don't know why you took your time. But I do know this, Lord, that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. She is a woman that understands the power of the Savior. She is a woman that understands the facts surrounding the death of her brother. And she is a person that is seeking to reconcile what she has experienced with what she knows to be true. And for her, the Lord simply explains the reality of the resurrection. Verse 23, Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. He confronts her with a fact. 
Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know what's interesting? She's trying to reconcile what she's going through with what she knows to be true. She's saying, the Lord's saying that Lazarus is going to rise again. How can that make sense? Nobody's ever rose from the grave after they've been in it for four days and their body is already corrupting and is already wasting away. How could this be possible? So she finds an answer. You know, I've found sometimes, uh, in fact, all the time, God's answers are always better than my answers. Most of the time when I'm trying to figure God out, whatever figuring I do, I always come out wrong. If I'll just stop and let God reveal Himself to me, if I'll let Him speak to me, then I'll get the truth of the matter. Usually when I try to put God in a box, that's when I get in a mess. And so Martha tries to do that. She says, He'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus cuts her off. He says, that's not what I said. I said He's going to rise again, and I mean today. I came today to raise Him from the grave. And so he confronts her with this truth. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asks her a pointed question. Martha, believest thou this? He explains to her the nature of the resurrection. You know, I want to bridge this with an application in your life and mine. The Bible goes to great lengths. is voluminous with passages that detail to us the reality, reason, process, mechanism, and implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If anybody tries to tell you that the resurrection is an optional doctrine, that it's just something that some people see this way, some people see that way, I'm here to tell you that they're uh, wrong. Now listen, if they want to argue about whether Adam had a belly button or where Cain got his wife, I'll give you a little grace there. There's probably some debate to be had. But when it comes to the resurrection... This is not optional. This is a keystone doctrine. And so when confronted with this, the Lord Jesus boldly declares the truth of the resurrection to Martha. Notice three things that I think we find hinted at here. First, the certainty of the resurrection is spoken of. He says, thy brother shall rise again. Not let's hope he does, not let's wait and see. He shall rise again. There is no dispute that prior to the cross, Jesus declared boldly, that he would die, be buried, and rise again the third day. Uh, Notice what it says in John chapter number 2, Then answered the Jews, verse 18, and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews were like you and me, they were sort of thick sometimes. And the Jews said to him, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? John gives us a little commentary. He says, but he spake of the temple of his body. The Lord Jesus either rose from the grave or he's a liar. Because he declared boldly on multiple occasions that he would die and raise from the grave. Anyone that claims that the resurrection is an optional doctrine, that maybe he didn't really raise from the grave, or maybe he rose, but it wasn't physical, it wasn't bodily, it wasn't literal. And by the way, there's a lot of people preaching that today. They are denying the very clear, authoritative record of Scripture. And they are by consequence, by implication, by extension, they are calling the Lord Jesus a liar. He said boldly, plainly, he would raise from the grave. The certainty of the resurrection is spoken of. Notice that the chronology of the resurrection is detailed to us. I find this interesting. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection. And notice this phrase, at the last day. 
So she says, well, I know God's eventually going to do this. One day He will raise, but we really can't know when that's going to be. You know, that's what the woman at the well tried to do to the Lord Jesus whenever He confronted her with her lost condition, she tried to say, well, one of these days, Messiah will come, and then he'll answer all these questions. And the Lord Jesus looked her dead in the eyeball and said, I that speak unto thee am he. He was saying to her, it's not time to put it off. God is staring you straight in the face. Today's the day of salvation. There's nothing else to wait for. Now a decision must be made. And in similar fashion, the Lord looks at Martha and says, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. You're saying one day God's going to do this. One day the resurrection will come. Jesus says, Martha, I'm the resurrection. I'm here now to do a work in your brother's body and life. You know, the chronology of the resurrection. I don't want to get bogged down here because it's easy to do. But Christ spoke on multiple occasions about exactly when he would rise from the grave. In fact, there's only one sign that he gives relative to his death and as a proof of his Messiahship. He says this in Matthew 12, 38. This is, by the way, we reference this speaking about Jonah. This is why I believe it's important what we believe about these matters. The Bible says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. So they're saying, Prove to us that you're who you say you are. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, the Lord Jesus predicted with meticulous detail exactly when he would rise from the grave. I, I, I'm not, I, I believe that most of the time, if you're arguing, you ain't winning. Somebody say amen to that. So I'm not interested in arguing. But I think we can say with absolute scriptural authority that if we believe he rose after sunset on Saturday, which he had to have done, if Mary comes to the tomb on Sunday morning, early before it's even daylight, and he's gone from the tomb, then he would have had to have risen sometime after sunset on Saturday night. Then he had to have been crucified on Wednesday. Now you say, well, preacher, if I don't believe that, am I going to die and go to hell? No, not unless you don't believe he didn't die. And, not unless you don't believe that he died and rose again in power and glory. Not unless you reject him as your Savior. But you say, preacher, does it matter? Yeah, it matters. Because if that's not true, then the Lord Jesus lied to us. He said three days, three nights. You say, well, preacher, what's a day and a night? Well, he told us in John chapter number 11, he said there's 12 hours during the day. Now, I don't know how many hours your clock has, but mine has 24 So that means there must be another 12, and that must be the night. And so a a day, in fact, the Bible uh, standard is the evening and the morning were the first day, puts us, has to put us squarely on Wednesday morning around 9 o'clock, Him being crucified. Now you say, preacher, don't none of that matter. And everybody tries to dismiss this. They try to say, well, people are arguing. I ain't arguing. I'm telling you what the Bible says. People say, well, preacher, you know, those things we don't need to get bogged down in. What? What the Lord Himself said? It does matter. It's not the most important thing in the world, but don't tell me it's the least important thing in the world either. It's not a matter of tradition. It's not a matter of culture. It's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of scriptural record and authority. And here he confronts Martha with the reality that the resurrection was not some far distant truth, but it was something that was present even in that moment in her life. The chronology of the resurrection is noted. And then look at the end of verse number 25. Man, I like this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 
And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. What's he saying? He's saying you was dead, but if you believe in me, it'll give you life. And after it gives you life, you'll have that life in perpetuity, eternally. It's why I believe in the eternal security of the believer. Christ said, shall never die. Not maybe will, not might, not hopefully if they hold on and try to be good and try to keep all their promises. Uh, John 5, 24 says we pass from death into life. will not come into condemnation. I see the capability of the resurrection here. That it has the ability to take a person who was lost and dead and unrighteous and raise them from that condition and give them a new life. John chapter number 10, the Lord said this, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. Do you know him today? Do you know him today? He knows who you are, but does he know you? You know who he is, but do you know him? There's a lot of people I know of. There's a lot of people I know about. But then there's a certain group of people that I know. I know the Lord today. Do you know Him today? He said, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I uh, the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring. They shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. How is He going to do all this? Therefore doth my Father love me, He said, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, he said, but I lay it down of myself. He said, I have power to lay it down. That's the death. And I have power to take it again. That's the resurrection. This commandment have I received of my Father. The resurrection is more than just a footnote in history. It's more than just a cardinal doctrine of Christianity. It is the very power of the gospel. It is the very effectual truth that enables God to change us and save us. And in this conversation, the Lord reminds Martha that the resurrection is standing right before. The question, Martha, is what will you do with Him that gives life? Martha is a cold pragmatist. For her, an explanation isn't necessary. But then whenever He's done speaking to Martha, Martha goes and she speaks to her sister Mary. Now remember, if Martha is a pragmatist, then Mary is a dreamer. Martha was the one that had her, uh, her, her up to her elbows in, in dishwater. She's the one that was working and laboring and looking at the task. Mary is the one that's just sitting at the Savior's feet, absorbed and enamored with His words and with His presence. And it seems, if you read this chapter carefully, it seems that of the two, Mary was, if I can say it this way, don't get mad at me for saying it this way, but Mary was the more emotional of the two. And she seems to be a little hysterical in this chapter. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my brother. If he died, I'd be awful upset. But of the two, Martha seems to be trying to grapple. And Mary seems to be trying to grieve. And so Martha goes and tells Mary, the Savior's here. He wants to speak to you. And Mary comes to the Lord and she echoes the exact same question. Verse number 32 Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now there she stops. Because she has no great logical or philosophical problem with what has happened, but she is just consumed with her grief. And so for her, the Lord does not try to explain the resurrection. Instead, 
The Bible says in verse number 33, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, He was groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? They said to the Lord, Come and see. So for Mary, it's not an explanation that's needed. For Mary, it's an example or an exhibition that's needed. She doesn't need to have it explained to her. She needs to see it with her own God-given eyeballs that Jesus can raise someone from the dead. Can I tell you that the resurrection is presented to us in Scripture not just by explanation, but also by example and exhibition? You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. We apprehend the resurrection not just because Christ said He was going to rise, but because Christ did in fact rise from the grave. And there's scriptural and historical record to substantiate that. There's a scriptural record in 1 Corinthians 15. This is one of probably a hundred I could give you. But this is Paul summing up the gospel in a nutshell. And he says this in verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And Paul says that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as of one out of born out of due time. So the scriptural record is clear. There's no debate or dispute as to whether Christ rose from the grave. In multiple places it is recorded for us. People grasping Him around the feet and kissing His feet. Uh, people feeling the nail prints. Feeling the place where the, the spear was of Him sitting on the seashore and eating fish uh, with His disciples. Of Him embracing them. Of Him kissing them. Of over 500 brethren who Paul says when he wrote this, the, the greater part remain. In other words, they're still alive. And Paul's writing, testifying that they have seen the Lord. There's a scriptural, clear scriptural record that the Lord rose from the dead. It's not a dispute dispute or a debate to anyone, but a Bible denier that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, if you deny the Word of God, you might as well fess up to it, be honest about it, and you can be convinced by the overwhelming weight of Scripture and of historical record and the reason and the logic of it. But understand that if you claim to believe the Bible to be the Word of God, then you must, on the authority of Scripture, accept the reality of the resurrection. There's a scriptural record. I don't have time for it. I I did this. I preached through it last year. But there's a logical rationale to the resurrection tomb. Uh, There is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And there was, whenever the disciples preached, there was, whenever Paul preached, there was an empty tomb. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because they couldn't have preached if there hadn't been an empty tomb. They couldn't have shared the gospel except there had been an empty tomb. It would have been too easy for the enemies of Christ and Christianity to point to a tomb with bones in it and say, see, he's not alive. He is not risen. He's dead. He's in there. But they had to be quiet. You know why? Because that empty tomb resonated thunderously with theological truth and declared boldly to the world that Christ is risen indeed. The church couldn't have been founded if the tomb had not been empty. The testimony of the disciples could not have held together for decades under persecution and even death had it not been that it was true and authentic. I'm telling you, there's a logical rationale to the resurrection. There's nothing can explain what has happened in history, what has happened uh, in the time of Christ, what is happening today. There's nothing that can explain it except an empty tomb and a risen Lord. So for Mary, there's an or an exhibition that is needed. But there's one other figure, and I want you to notice him with me. His name is Lazarus. 
We don't know much about Lazarus really in Scripture. We don't have any interactions between him and the Savior uh, of a personal nature. We find that he's just sort of there most of the time. We assume he was there in Mary and Martha's home whenever the Lord was present and Mary was sitting at his feet. Later on, if the Lord will will it, we'll be preaching tonight on another scene that takes place in the house of Simon the leper after Lazarus is raised from the dead. But we don't really have much told us about him. And the main story that features him, he doesn't have a prominent role or an active role in. You know why? Because he was dead the whole time. He's known simply as a dead man. He is characterized by his dead condition. And yet when we read this passage we find that God was able to take a dead man and breathe and speak life and life eternal into him. He not only apprehended or comprehended, he apprehended the resurrection. And he did so not by explanation, not by exhibition, but he did so by experience. Can I say to you this morning before we even get into talking about Lazarus, you may, listen, you may have comprehended it by explanation, You may have been taught the resurrection your whole life. You may understand it better than this preacher sitting before you does. You may even have comprehended it by the example of Christ. You may say, preacher, I accept everything you're saying. You're right. There had to be an empty tomb. There had to be a risen Savior. But can I ask you this question? Have you apprehended it by experiencing it firsthand for yourself? It's not enough just to comprehend it. We've got a lot of people filling a lot of church pews. And I don't necessarily mean here in this place. I don't know anybody's heart. But you can look at the condition of the church at large and you can look at the condition of society and tell that we have a lot of people sitting in a lot of church pews that they have a comprehension, but they have no apprehension. They know it, man. They know all the right answers. They've been taught it in Sunday school but they don't have no more relationship with God than Lazarus did before he rose. They're just as dead as Lazarus was. They're dead in their sins. They have no new life. They have no relationship with God. And they don't know where they're going when they die. Can I extend the same offer to you this morning that the Lord extended to Lazarus? What was that offer? Well, I want you to notice, if you, before we do, I want to read something to you. In Ephesians chapter number 2, because I want you to understand that what happened to Lazarus physically is what must happen to you and I spiritually. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse number 1, you hath He quickened, that means to be made alive, to breathe life into, you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, if you've never believed on the Lord, you're dead, spiritually dead. can't have a relationship with God except through Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you've not believed on the Lord Jesus and received Him as your Savior, surrendered your will to His and accepted Him as the payment and propitiation for your sin, then you may have all the church religion in the world, but you don't have a relationship with God. You're in a dead condition. He says, You hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh, in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God. But God. See, that that verse 1, 2, and 3, that describes Lazarus in his deadness. But I want you to notice verse, verse 4, it describes the Lord in His deliverance. But God 
who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You need, if you're lost today, to be raised from the grave of your sins, the way that Lazarus was raised from the grave of corruption. I see three things about how Lazarus was raised that stick in my mind. First off, I cannot help but look at Lazarus and see the love that he received. When the Lord Jesus, the shortest verse in your Bible, verse number 35, says simply this, Jesus wept. Theologians have debated for centuries about what He was weeping about. Some have said that He was weeping because Mary and Martha were weeping. Some have said He was weeping because of the unbelief of them in laying Lazarus in the tomb. But one thing is evident, that when the Lord Jesus comes to that scene of death, Lazarus wrapped in grave clothes, rotting within, it breaks his heart. Can I tell you something? The Jews, they knew what they were looking at. They said this in verse 36, and said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. How he loved him. They said, I don't understand everything that's going on, but I know this, that the man outside the tomb must assure love that man that's inside the tomb. His heart is broken over the situation. Can I tell you something? Uh, the great news this morning, you may be dead in your trespasses and sins. You may be laid up in the grave of your iniquity. You may say, well, no man cares for my soul. Nobody's interested in me. Nobody cares what goes on in my life. But can I promise you something? You may be in the tomb of your sins, but there's a Savior on the outside of the tomb whose heart is broken, who loves you, who cares about you, who has come a long way that He might redeem you from the grave of your sins. I find a love that burdened God. It broke His heart. God's heart is broken over the deadness of men's sins. He wants to change them. He wants to save them. But I find another beautiful truth here. Look at verse number 38. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in Himself. Notice these four words, man. You can skip over them if you're not careful. It says what? He cometh to the grave. He didn't ask Lazarus to come to where he was. He came to where Lazarus was. He went all the way to the grave that he might pull Lazarus out of there. And I'm reminded that just a few short weeks later, the Lord Jesus would be brought to another grave. It wouldn't be the grave of Lazarus, but it would be a grave owned by a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who had donated it to the beggarly and paltry Savior of all mankind. And his body would be laid in that grave for three days and three nights. He would not stay there. On the third day, the power of God would begin to ripple through the body that had lain there cold for 72 hours. Imagine how hell shivered when His hand first moved and He would rise up from that grave. He would leave that place in power and in majesty of His own accord, of His own ability, of His own glory. And He did so that He might redeem you and I from our grave. He came all the way to the grave. Man, I'm glad He came to where I was. I couldn't get up out of the grave of my sins. But He sure enough loved me enough that He would come be made a sacrifice for me, that He'd go to His own grave, that He might redeem me from my grave, that He might change my life. Man, I'm thankful for the love that He received. But then I see the life that He received. There's Lazarus laying in this tomb. This had never happened before. 
The Jews had a commonly held belief that for the first three days after death, the spirit of the individual would hover about their body. This was mere silly superstition. There's no foundation of it in Scripture. But I believe that God goes to great lengths to dispel the superstitions of man oftentimes with the authoritative record of Scripture. Because Lazarus, he laid in the grave not one day, not two days, not three days, but four days. And whenever the Lord comes up to the tomb, Martha stops it and says, Lord, don't you know that He already stinketh? Saying, Lord, He's too far gone. There's nothing anyone can do. Not even you yourself can raise Him. Corruption has already set in. Man, I'm glad of this. Though Lazarus stank, the Lord still came to him. Now, some of you all, this might offend your refined sensibilities. But the Bible describes that when we live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, it's like a sweet savor in His nostrils. Like an Old Testament burning of incense, it's a sweet savor to His nostrils. For me, I don't like incense, but I sure enough like cornbread. Somebody say amen to that. When I go in the house and my wife's been cooking some shuck beans and some cornbread, man, it just hits me. I mean, it meets me at the bottom of the driveway and it's a sweet savor in my nostrils. And man, my stomach begins to growl and I get excited. And uh, man, I'm ready. If I come in she had already eaten all of it, we'd have a bloodbath. Because man, I'm ready when I smell that cornbread. When we live in a way that's pleasing to God, it's a sweet savor in His nostrils. But what about Lazarus? He's not a sweet savor. Man, he stinks. His death is smelling on him. Can I say that when the Lord saved you and I, it wasn't because we were a sweet savor in His nostrils. It wasn't because we were doing right and living right and looking right and dressing right and acting right. We had been in the grave four days. Our life stunk, man. There was nothing redeemable about us, nothing right about us, nothing appealing about us. But even though we stink, He still breathed life into us. I wrote it down like this. Though Lazarus stank... The Lord still spoke. He still came to him. You, and this is what I want you to get, man. The old songwriter said, listen, four days isn't too late. The Lord's, it's never too late. He's always on time. And you might say, preacher, man, I've made a mess of my life. I, I, I've done this and I've done that. I got things I can never get rid of. And I got problems I don't know how to deal with. Man, my life is a mess. It reeks. It stinks. I'm so messed up that God could never save me. But I'm here to tell you that the Lord stands outside the tomb of your grave and He doesn't mind that you stink. He can change that about you. He can save you. He can clean you up. He can redeem you. He can fix you. He can bring you out of death and give you life. I see the life that He received. And finally, and I'm done this morning, I see the liberty that He received. Lazarus comes walking out of that tomb smelling like a rose. But there's only one thing that still stinks about Him. And that's the clothes that He's wearing. And so the Lord says, Hey, 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 it ain't fit for a living man to be wearing dying clothes. Go and loose him and let him go. You know, when the Lord saves us, He delivers us from the prison of our grave. He he saves us. He changes our life. But you know, a lot of times, some of those old habits, they die hard. And we've been delivered from the prison of the grave, but we still struggle with the bondage of the garments. We still wear those old ratty clothes of bad habits, those old ratty clothes of a bad spirit or a bad attitude. 
And I'm here to tell you this morning, listen, if you're saved by the grace of God, and maybe you got some grave clothes hanging in your closet, you probably wore your Sunday best on Easter, but if you're honest, there's some grave clothes sitting in your closet. Can I, can I just tell you this morning, you don't have to walk around in them things. The Lord, when He saved you, He intended on changing you, and He did change you. And He wants the outside to start looking more like the inside. It ain't fit for a Christian to be walking around in the old grave clothes of worldliness and ungodliness and carnality and lust and lewdness. He seeks to change us, not from the outside in. He had already changed Lazarus from the inside. He didn't say, take those grave clothes off and let's put some ointment on him. Take those grave clothes off, we'll put a little cologne on him. Take those grave clothes off, we'll perform surgery. Hey, when they unwrapped those grave clothes, his skin looked fresh as a baby's behind. He looked as clean, as new, as fresh. Well, if you got a baby like mine, they ain't always so fresh. Amen. But Man, it looked just like a little baby's skin. God had already done a work on the inside, but the outside needed to match the inside. And in your life and mine, listen, you're here this morning, if you really not just comprehend but apprehend the resurrection, then you have to recognize the fact that God didn't save you for you to keep living in that old dead life. Hey, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. The fact is, when the Lord saved you, He saved you that He might change you from the inside out. You might have some grave clothes hanging in your closet that you need to bring up and put on this altar this morning and say, Lord, take this away from me. I want to live in the reality and power of Christ's resurrection.